church is at the heart of what God is doing in the world. That means that the people of God in a particular location or community are the means by which God makes his mercy, his grace, his love, his compassion, and his very presence known in that community. It's how the people living there would know who God is and what he's like. And when you read through the New Testament, it's churches that launch and plant and establish other churches. This is how God intends for it to be. And this is why we're passionately committed at Chapel Street Church to becoming a family of neighborhood churches. We made the strategic decision not to build one large campus in one location and hope that people drive from farther away, but to reproduce ourselves in communities and in neighborhoods so that the people living there would know the presence of God. And that's why we're so excited to talk about our fourth campus opportunity. God has given us the place in North Aurora, and God has preparing a people with Pastor Andrew Griffiths and his team as he's assembling to launch this coming fall. And God has also given us the opportunity to make this happen financially. Recently, a very generous private donor has come and said that they would like to commit to matching 50% of the balance of this project, which is $1.1 million. So if we, as a church family, can give $550,000 to $600,000 this person will match that $600,000 and we can launch this campus completely debt-free. What a great opportunity God has given us. What better investment could you think of than to invest in the expansion of God's kingdom by expanding the local church, the way that God makes his presence known in a community. I'm asking everyone who calls Chapel Street Church their home, whether or not you attend the North Aurora campus, would you prayerfully consider what contribution you could make above and beyond your regular giving so that we could launch this campus debt-free this fall. And here's how you can do that. Simply indicate in your check, should you write a check, Neighborhood Church Multiplication. Or if you give online digitally, simply select Neighborhood Church Multiplication as your giving destination. And we'll celebrate together what God does in our midst as we launch the next campus for His glory and for the sake of His gospel. Thank you for being part of the Chapel Street Church family. There's a lot of um, like nostalgia when I watch that for me, just, just recognizing and seeing that that was us three and a half years ago, thinking about um, coming out to the Mill Creek campus, building a team, seeing God provide in just amazing and, and uh, mind-blowing ways, and, and now to watch that again being played out and recognizing that this is what we felt like God was calling us to four or five years ago at the time we had no just sort of sense of it and God raising up this vision and raising up the people to do it and seeing him answer prayers and watching the body of Christ share in this and be a part of this has been so encouraging and we are so very very grateful for your involvement here your participation and generosity that that helps this vision be realized in this work um, continue I uh if you were here Three weeks ago, we launched a new series um, studying Peter's letters, um, the Apostle Peter. And at the beginning of First Peter, we talked about um, this idea of homesickness, this sense of that while we're here on this earth, we as followers of Jesus have this, this uh, sense of being homesick because it's not our ultimate home. And, and experiences of pain and suffering in the here and now, um, Peter is is normalizing that in the life of the church. He's teaching us to anticipate, to expect that, and to be ready for that. 
And so I preached this sermon on normalizing and being ready for not, not being caught by surprise when suffering comes our way. And that Sunday afternoon, I go home, I start to feel like a little twinge in my back. I'm kind of like, what's going on? By Tuesday, I'm in the hospital trying to pass a kidney stone. Um, by Thursday, I have this rash that's breaking out across my torso, which I later experience or discover is shingles. I feel like I'm 100 years old at, at this point in time. And I'm kind of wondering, like, I'm not going to preach on suffering anytime soon in the, in the near future. So I've entitled today's sermon, The Joy of the Lord and the Experience of His Favor. Um, we'll try to take this a different direction. We were, we were talking about that whole idea of, of Peter's setting expectations for the church. Because how when we as the church, if our expectations of God are off, then when we experience things that don't line with those false expectations, it, it can really shatter our faith, our relationship with him. And that's why Peter is being very honest in it. Expectations are a powerful thing. Think about it. If you, have you ever had somebody say to you um, before you saw a movie, oh, that's the best movie I've ever seen, right? They just ruined the movie for you because it's, it's, you go in with this sense of like, this is going to be amazing. And if it's anything less than that, you feel disappointed. Or if you travel at all and you're in a group of people, like when we go back to Ohio and they say, let's go get some pizza. And you're like, okay, it's not going to be any good, Right because I live in Chicago, I know what real pizza is, and that it's not this, you know, like, it's pizza's been ruined for us. Think about, think about in the confines of marriage. Like, one of the things that Sherry and I over the years have had the opportunity to do is to sit down with couples, to do premarital counseling with them, to try to invest in them prior to their marriage. And one of the fundamental primary conversations that we seek to have with these couples is to get them to vocalize expectations. Because whether or not we recognize it or not, when we come into a marriage, we have all sorts of ideas and concepts and things from our childhood, watching our parents, society, culture that we bring in. And whether those are good, bad, or indifferent, when they remain unspoken, what, what it creates is when those aren't in alignment, then it creates conflict. And oftentimes we're not equipped and prepared on how to deal with with that conflict. And so if you can surface those expectations and you can learn how to process those as a couple, you can be set up on how to navigate some of those early years of, of marriage. Expectations are, are a powerful thing. This week we begin our celebration of Holy Week together. It starts today with Palm Sunday. It leads into Holy Week communion later this week with um, Maudy Thursday and Good Friday services. And it'll culminate next Sunday morning. I cannot wait when we gather as the body of Christ to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. It, it, in the year that we have had, this just feels so necessary to be together, to be reminded of the great victory that our Savior has won on our behalf. Um, and we, you are all invited to join us. You're invited to bring friends and neighbors and anybody you with. I think our only we may have a few spots left on Saturday night, but our outdoor service at 1030, the forecast says 64 degrees and, and partly sunny, which I will take because our outdoor service at Christmas Eve was 16 degrees and partly freezing. So um, we are just excited. We would invite you to join us. It's going to be a full 
worship service, bring a chair or blanket. We're going to camp out there on the lawn at 1030, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together as the body of Christ. And we'd love to have you be a part of that. Today, we come back to this familiar story for so many of us. If you grew up in the church, you've probably heard this dozens of times. We think of it and talk about it as the triumphal entry. This moment in the history of of our church or of the story of Jesus that is ripe with expectation. In fact, it's, it's so laden with expectation, with anticipation, and with hope that the fullness of everything that's unfolding around this event is, is so obscured by the assumptions that people brought into it, false assumptions, that they failed to understand what was ultimately happening. They failed to understand the gravity of what Jesus was doing. They missed it. They're right there in the moment, and they miss it. Jesus is acknowledged, he's praised as the long-awaited king, and that is exactly right. But he's acknowledged and praised as, as the king that they wanted him to be, not as the unexpected king. He came not as the king that they necessarily wanted or expected became as the king that we all needed and that's what we want to look at today let's pray and we'll open up god's word together father we do thank you for this time just to look into your word to be reminded of the victory that you would accomplish lord again show us a fuller vision of who you are that we would worship you in in truth and it's in your name we pray amen if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 19. We'll put this up on the screen as well. I'm going to begin in verse 28 and, and, uh, and read down through verse 40. After Jesus had said this, we'll talk more about that in a second, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who are sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground, and when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet the stones will cry out. We want to look at this passage today through this, the lens of this unexpected king. The arrival of the unexpected king, and it begins with an unexpected entry. An unexpected entry. Uh, I have told stories about this before, but Sherry and I had the privilege several years ago of taking our, our daughters for the first time to Disney World down in, in Florida. And uh, I, I have three daughters, so I've seen like every Disney princess movie there is to see. And, 
and there's our own family was ripe with excitement. There was this enthusiasm about going, but it's one of the days when we're entering the park, we're at the, the Magic Kingdom and we're going in in the morning and you'd see all these families, some of them all wearing like the same shirts, like they make shirts for their Disney adventure and they're going in. And there's this little boy as he comes into the park. If you've ever been there, the entry is just, you know, it's like everything Disney. They just decked out, the landscape's perfect. It's just a beautiful moment. And you could see kids kind of, coming in with like their eyes bulging out, like as they're just taking in this, like they've arrived, you know? And there's little, this little boy, he's, I don't know, four or five years old, like just, just so excited, kind of like um, struck by the scene, everything he's watching. And he's, he sits there and he kind of looks around. He goes, I've waited my whole life for this, <laughs> you know? He's waited like all four years of his life for this moment. But we, we get that feeling, right? That's, that sense of anticipation when something that we've longed for is finally happening. Now imagine for a moment that for generations before you, they told the story that one day your family would be the recipients of God's long-awaited hope. Imagine the gravity of, of what is taking place outside of Jerusalem when you've lived your entire life with this set of expectations. If we can like place ourselves in the scene as if we're a first century Jewish man or woman, we're living in, our, 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 our people are occupied by Rome, we're oppressed by a brutal regime, and the promise of a Messiah, of a Savior, that would one day arrive to set the people free is a story that's told over and over and over in the history of our people. The one who would come to restore Israel. And now there's this collective sense. This is the moment. This is, this is what we have all been waiting for. It's unfolding around us generation after generation after generation has looked forward to this moment. And it's happening. There's a couple things here that, that have fed into this, this sense of expectation, this anticipation, the idea that that this is the moment. One is in verse 29. Note where it says that all of this is happening. It says, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. The town of Bethany is where Martha and Mary lived with their brother Lazarus. If you remember from John chapter 11, Lazarus is, is raised from the dead by the power of Jesus' words. He's called out of the grave. So for them, Jesus is not just this itinerant rabbi who's full of wisdom passing through. He's the one who spoke life into a dead citizen in their town. And the guy came out of the grave. Like, you know that feeling you get like when you've done something really well and then people expect you to keep doing it, right? It's like when I preach a really good sermon. And I kind of want to be like, you shouldn't always expect that. Like, that's not always like, it's not always going to come out that way. It, you, you, this sense of anticipation is being informed by something that they saw, that they witnessed, at the very least they heard about, where Jesus performed something incredible. In fact, if you notice here, I didn't put this on the screen, but it says as, as they put him on this colt, it said, the disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. Why? For all the miracles that they had seen. 
It, it, it's, it's like they've, they've got a piece of it. But the expectation is, is that it's like we know what you're coming to do. We've seen it. But Jesus has a different idea. This is an area where Jesus has notoriety, where he's done the miraculous, and people are saying he's going to do it again, and he's going to get there, and he's going to take the throne, and he's going to overthrow Rome, and he's going to set the people free. And this goes, this is even further sort of um, understood with all this imagery that we see in this text of Jesus being placed on this colt. Uh, Matthew points out it's, it's the foal of a donkey. It's direct fulfillment of, of messianic prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says it this way. He says, uh, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus' entrance into the city is happening exactly like Zechariah said it would. These promises that the people knew about the Messiah, it's, it's all happening. The expectation is building. On, on a sidebar here, one of the interesting things about this whole um, element of, of the full, the cult, it's interesting how the fullness of Jesus is, is on display in just this one aspect. Because again, like we, we see the divinity of Jesus here, his, um, his omniscience, his sovereignty. He tells his disciples, I want you to go to this place. And when you get there, you're going to find a, a foal, a colt that's tied up. And if anybody asks you about it, here's what you're supposed to say. We see, so Jesus is not there. He just knows what's happening. We see this on display. And then if anybody asks you about it, he says, you're just telling the Lord has need of it. Jesus, and again, there's, there's, a, there's a societal, um, like, like there was political leaders and rabbis could kind of commandeer a vehicle. So it's, it's not like it's societally unknown. And, and again, Jesus' reputation in this area, these people may have very well said, of course, Jesus wants it, like absolutely take it. But the point is, he, it's his. He owns it all. He created it. And then thirdly, Luke is he specifically mentions, like Zechariah does, that it's, it's never been ridden on. It's an unbroken cult. Meaning I, I don't have a lot of like experience like breaking animals, but I know that riding on an unbroken donkey in a parade doesn't end well, right? But this, this animal comes fully under the leadership of Jesus. Like it, it's, it's just like when Jesus spoke and the wind and the waves obeyed him. We see it all here. His divinity is on full display. And then thirdly, there's the text leading into this whole passage is so informative. And there's so much that happens. But one thing that I want to just point out today is that when Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, he's up by Jericho. And when he's in Jericho, there's this event with, with a blind beggar on the side of the road. This is in Luke 18, verse 35. It says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the, road, by the roadside begging. And when he had heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. We're going to need a healing on this microphone real quick, I think. You know what? I'm just going to talk loud. Is that all right? Okay, we can do that. Oh, and we're going to change it out. Check, one, two, hey, how about that? Okay, there we go. Oh, this is going to be interesting. Right. <laughs> Don't move, okay. Um, you guys are such a gracious group of people. Um, anyways, this event right here, when that beggar uses that phrase, when he calls out to Jesus, he says, Jesus, son of David, we can read right past that, but the, the, if you were a first century Jewish man or woman, and you, like, that would have rang, rung in your ears. Like you, you, because that man, it's a, that title is a very specific, messianic, kingly title. It's as if he's saying of Jesus, you are the one. He's telling the people there in Jericho, he's here. And this is the first time in Jesus's ministry that he allows that title to be applied to him. It's the first time in a public situation where Jesus does not silence the person or say it's not time yet. He says it is time. And he says it twice. And when the people kind of rebuke the guy, he says it all the louder and Jesus receives it. In fact, he validates it because he brings them up and he says, what can I do for you? And he heals him and gives him sight back and the people praise. At this point in time, there's no going back. For Jesus in that moment, it's, it's either you go and you accept this position, you take your throne, or you're guilty of blasphemy. And you, you accept the consequences. Ironically, again, isn't it, it's, it's a blind person who sees it. He sees who he is. He calls out. So all this expectation has, has reached a boiling point. It's led to, to the people grabbing this colt, setting Jesus up on it, creating a parade through the city where they're declaring aloud, he's here. The one we have been waiting for is here. We're going to be set free from the oppressor. The king is here. And they respond in worship to him. But it's an unexpected worship. It's an it's a incomplete worship. Back in Luke, verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and we came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I, um, when Sherry and I were, were about to get married, we were engaged at the time, and I was, I was interviewing at a, some different churches looking for my first ministry job. And um, through sort of uh, a connection, like a, a church that we volunteered at, they had connections at this church in the city in Berwyn, um, just outside of Chicago. And we went down kind of nervous, sort of excited, wondering, like, could this be the place where God's going to bring us and what he has in store for us? And we walk through the door of this church, and there's a little group of people that are waiting there to greet us and conduct the interview and show us around and host us for the day. And this sweet older woman, as we walk through the door, looks at me and says, you are the one we've been waiting for. And I said, I don't want this job. <laughs> like you, I, you, I immediately got this sense, and I didn't know the story of what was going on in that church or everything that unfolded, but that they are with some need there that I was not going to be able to meet. Like the, this sense of what they were looking for was beyond what I could do. So what, what's interesting about this whole situation is on the one hand, they're getting it exactly right. The people are shouting praise as they welcome the king into the city. They're laying their clothes down in this act of, of homage as Jesus is surrounded by Joyful crowds who are shouting together, they're declaring their allegiance and placing their hope, and they're saying, he is in fact the son of David. But the worship is incomplete. Because as they're worshiping the Jesus that they wanted him to be, rather than, than the Jesus he told them that he was. In fact, if you look back again in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is with his disciples in this moment, and, he, and they're heading to Jerusalem at this point. And he's preparing his disciples. This is in verse 31. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and everything that's been written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. So at that point, they're like, yeah, like, the, you know, like, this is happening. And then he continues, and he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They'll flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. Look at verse 34. And the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Jesus describes in no uncertain terms What's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem? He, he, he tells them that the victory isn't going to be accomplished through military might and through political savvy, but through sacrifice and humiliation, through death, and, and ultimately through resurrection. But this didn't fit the idea of, of who their king was. This didn't fit with the expectation that they had for Jesus. So they worshiped him, but not for who he was and what he said he would do, but rather their idea of who he was and what they wanted him to do. And here's the thing. We do this. 
We, we, I, can, I can be really good at worshiping my idea of Jesus. I, I can get loud, exuberant with praise and worship when he is fitting in right with my expectations of him. But when, when those don't align, when those aren't congruent, do I continue to worship? Do I continue to acknowledge him as the king that he is? When we, our preaching meeting this week, we were talking about this aspect of the passage. And Joe, who uh, preached last night at the Saturday evening service, he called this uh, fit or split theology. A fit or split faith. Meaning that when we... we take our lives and it's like I've got I compartmentalize and I can fit Jesus in a couple hours on a Sunday morning and I can fit Jesus in and a quick prayer before a meal or before I go to bed and I've got these little parts but then I've got these other areas of my life where it's like I'm 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 gonna keep control here and so I'll fit him in when I can and and then I'll manage the rest of this on my own terms or we kind of have that split theology where it's like we like to parse out the parts of Jesus that, that we like and that we're comfortable with and that feel good to us, and then sort of ignore the parts that are hard and uncomfortable and, and ask something of us. So when Jesus says, when he teaches us, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, amen, praise the Lord, I'm all down for that. I like that, Jesus. When he says, pick up your cross and follow me, no thanks. We, we split him into categories so we can manage him. It's easy to look at everything that's unfolding 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem, to see it in, on this side of the cross and, and, and think, how did they miss it? But I think one of the takeaways of, of Palm Sunday for us as the body of Christ, as the church today, is to see ourselves in that crowd to recognize our own propensity of worshiping him as, as the king that we want him to be rather than the king that he came to be, the one who would bear the weight of our sin, which then leads us to this, this final aspect, and that is an unexpected response. An unexpected response. Like, have you, have you found yourself in a situation where you have, um, you walk into a scenario and you kind of have like, a sense of what the tone should be, right? And then you get there and it's not in alignment with how you think it should be. Like I, I've done a lot of weddings in, in my day and I, uh, one time I came in, you generally think weddings are gonna be a pretty joyful occasion and come in, I'm gonna check in with the, the mother of the bride, with the bride and the groom, see how everybody's doing. And I walk in and there's a lot of uh, tears and not the like good kind, you know? Like, and you, and you kind of, I was like, uh, something is not good here. Like, something has happened to cause this. Or if you've ever been at, like, a funeral. And like, we all, you know, deal with grief in, in unique ways. But it's like, there's the, the person over on the side of the room who's, like, telling some story and kind of, like, laughing. And, and you're like, read the room, man. Like, it's like, you don't, like, things are out of alignment, and here, this is exactly what we discover because the people are cheering, the people are praising, there's a, literally a parade happening. And then we see the response of Jesus. Verse 41. 
As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground and and the children within your walls. And they'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Just note the difference in response here. The people are celebrating, they're cheering, and Jesus is weeping. In fact, that, that Greek word there is, is like, um, like deep grief. This is, there's not like a tear running down Jesus' cheek. It's, it's, it's the same word used of the grief at Lazarus' tomb. It's like a wailing, a mourning. Jesus is, is broken. The people rejoice while the Savior weeps. Why? As Jesus is overlooking Jerusalem, He sees what they can't. Jesus knows that so many of the people who've laid their cloaks on the ground, so many of them who have shouted together, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. People He loves, people He will lay down His life for. He knows that they're missing it. He knows that the kingdom that he is initiating won't be, uh, won't be won by, the, by defeat of Israel's enemies. It's going to come through sacrifice. Jesus understood that his triumph would come through tragedy. He weeps because the people are missing it because the king that they wanted him to be is not the king that they need him to be. And when their expectations go unmet, instead of gaining this this fuller understanding of who Jesus is, they'll reject Him. And the shouts of praise, the shouts of blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord will turn to cries of crucify Him. And Jesus looks down at Jerusalem. He sees the city. And he weeps because he says, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So how do we as, as the church, in our own experience, in our own faith journeys, how do we, how do we process this? How do we, are we to understand these verses? See, from beginning to end, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, all of this, this story about who Jesus is and what he does reveals the nature of the one true king. It reveals his, that he is a paradoxical king who brought in a paradoxical kingdom. He, he's the one that although the, the wind and the waves obey his every word, when, when his presence come into place, the, the uh, presence of evil flees from him. He's the one with the power of his touch will remove leprosy with the power of his word, can speak life where there was death. Jesus would not take his throne through a display of political power, but rather one of spiritual victory. Jesus redefines what it means to be the king. What it means to be the son of David. 
The victory that he'll win will, will be won through love and grace and forgiveness and peace. It'll be one that he ushers in through laying down his life. But the result of that is far more than temporal peace and momentary victory. What Jesus came to bring was eternal life in his kingdom. He would do something far greater than they, than they ever asked or imagined. And so for us as the church, as we think about Holy Week, as we think about what we're coming into, the question that we wrestle with is how do we worship our king? Do we worship him as the king that we want him to be? Or do we understand him as the one true king, uh, king who came not to fulfill our wants, but to give us everything that we need? And he would do so by laying down his life so that in him we might, we might experience new life. He would take on the penalty of sin so that we could be found free, guiltless, redeemed by the power of him. That's, that's the nature of the king. And that is his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we do just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for once again returning to this event where there was so much expectation, so much anticipation. And yet there was so much that was off that the people didn't understand. And so God, we thank you that on this side of the cross, we have a fuller vision of what you would do. So Jesus, do not let us settle for a reduced vision of you as our king and the kingdom that you brought. May we as your church and we as your people live in a full understanding that you came not as the king that we expected or that we even wanted, but you came as the king that we all needed. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me and receive this morning's benediction? Again, we are very much looking forward to next Sunday to celebrating the resurrection with you. We hope you can all join us. Um, if you have not registered yet, even though the service is outdoors, um, we do ask that you register just so it would help us know kind of what to expect. And um, we'll probably have to figure out some ways to accommodate parking and to look for an email this week if you're coming to the 1030 service next week. I'll give you some details on that. Um, if you came and you'd like to give to this morning's offering, you can do that on your way out as well. There's boxes by the doors. Um, and now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of Jesus Christ, the one true king who came, who gave his life so that we might live. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.